I'm Tuki, and uh, welcome to the Cucumber Podcast. Today from Cucumber, I've got Azak Halasoy. Hello, everyone. And Seb Rose. Hello. And uh, today we're speaking to Llewellyn Falco. So, hi, Llewellyn. Hello. So, Llewellyn, could you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So, I'm a programmer. I've been a programmer for a long, long time, and... I came into pair programming really early in my career uh, and and ended up doing it full-time basically since 2003 now, so so about 15 years. And I did a style of pair programming, which is is now called strong style pairing, but at the time I think was just the way I normally did it, where the rule is that for an idea to go from your head to the keyboard, it has to go through someone else's hands. And that is a very, very good learning technique. And, and I think like a lot of what came out of my career afterwards really is just breast on the fact that I've really, really been part of just learning constantly. And so one of the first things we started learning was test-driven development, and we started writing tests. Uh, and in the beginning, uh, I, I wouldn't even say test-driven development, to be fair, like to my 2003 self. It was really just unit testing. Uh, and then somewhere around 2004, 2005, like it started shifting into test-driven development where our tests were really coming first and really, really innovating us. And then um, I came up with something called approval test. That was around 2007. Uh, and then we started something called mob programming. That was around 2009 with, with Woody. Uh, and then I started something called Teaching Kids Programming, which is a organization that creates free and open source courseware. Uh, with Lynn Langett out in about 2009. Uh, and and then recently I've also been doing some stuff with Sparrow Decks. And all the theme throughout all of this is just I really, really care about like learning and, and trying new things. And that that's a lot of what keeps driving me. I, I'm a consultant, so that allows me extra learning possibilities because I get to go and try a lot of different things in a lot of different places. Okay, well, um, so, I mean, I know we first got in touch, Llewellyn, because of the mob programming things, and we've, yeah. we've done a couple of podcasts on um, mob pro- programming in the past, um, and we, we try and do it ourselves remotely. Um, but I think specifically one of the things we thought our listeners would be really interested to hear more about you from today would be the approval test. Oh, yes. I mean, it's, it's rare that I get to geek out this much about testing and and I really like testing I really really like the way that it crafts my code I like the way it brings my thought process and I was like I, I didn't want to pass up that opportunity <laughs> yeah for sure and um, this is this is a great uh, a great forum for it because uh, exactly <laughs> people people in this uh, context really care about testing so um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about Maybe just start with what is the approval testing approach? Yeah. So approval testing as a, there's two words here that are kind of similar and get a little bit confusing, but approval testing is like the the process and then approval tests is the actual implementation. Um, But a lot of us, you know, when we started doing any kind of testing, the most obvious thing to test is a primitive, like a string or a number or, you know, this equals five, like that. That's where testing sort of started for most of us. And then we a lot of times start to test a little bit more robust things, right? Like a string. Like, hey, I got this little piece of JSON here that I need to test, right? Maybe you put together like a table uh, that's sitting in there. 
But those strings start to get bigger, right? And when they get to sort of like an uncomfortable size to be sitting in your code, a lot of times we'll pop them into a file, right? And so, so that's kind of nice, right? Like, because now I can handle like a full JSON request or a full XML file or you know something like that. But then you get this problem: you get all these files and you have to manage them. And I think this this really came from my time with Ruby is that concept of you know, configuration or uh, convention over configuration, right? That, hey, ra rather than being really explicit and declaring everything, wouldn't it be nice if I just sort of knew where stuff was? Mm -hmm. And so we started making, you know, sort of automated file names of, hey, I, I happen to know that this is going to show up in this file name because it's based on the name of my test, right? Like, it, I can just put that together. Uh, and then as soon as I had these files, I was like, yeah, you know, I really need to know what the difference is. And, and a lot of times when it shows up on the command line, it's just not that easy to see what the difference is. But, I mean, we've been using source control for so long, like all of us know about diff tools. So I, I had the file, and I was just like, well, let me just diff it. You know? And that started to become really nice because the tooling started to like show, hey, this is exactly, exactly where you know, this character on line 15 is where it's different and it, it also is different here, but I still get the whole structure of the thing, right? Like, here's my whole request. Here's exactly what's different. And I started really liking this ability to, to use the tooling as we, as we go. And then this thing came about, whereas because, because it was all wrapped up, commonality started to come up. And this is something that, and when I talk about, like, making little custom asserts, Usually the only other people who understand what I'm talking about at all are people from the Cucumber community because I think the way that you've broken up given when then, like you get to reuse your givens a lot. You get to reuse your thens a lot, right? So you, that idea of like as I am testing something, it becomes easier to test because I build up this sort of library of, of commonality, right? And and a lot of people who, who are doing unit testing don't usually get that, right? Let's say like each new unit test is a, is a new world of, of uniqueness and pain, unfortunately. Uh, so that reuse sort of thing. So this entire thing of I'm, I'm saving bigger, I'm verifying bigger things. Um, I'm verifying by putting them in a file. And then I'm using tooling to, to see the files, see how they're different, see how, I mean, you don't just have to use diff tools to see them different. You can also use tooling to see, like, so if I have HTML, I might actually want to see how that renders, right? If I have a sound file, I might want to hear how it sounds, right? Like, that's a thing that using a traditional assert is very, very complicated is, let's say I have a process where I have this sound file, and then I'm writing this function that just removes the background noise, mm. right? Well, that's a really simple test to write, right? Give me a sound file, run the function that produces the cleaner version of it, but then that verification becomes like a nightmare. Like what, what do I how do I how do I verify that the new sound file is 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 nicer? Right? Like am I gonna check an individual frequency? Do I check length? Like what do I check? But it's very easy to me to listen to that sound file and say, yes, this is nicer. In the future, I want it to keep doing this. Right, and so that that process of sort of splitting test first from before we would just we'd write the entire test, and when it passed, we were good. And here we write the the active part of the test, the doing part of the test, mm -hmm. uh, the given then, and then the when comes 
sort of after you've actually written the code where you're like, okay, show me what I'm writing. I like it. Let me let me move it over to to this approved state. And then just keep doing that. And if it changes, come back to me. Fail, let me know. So, so you mentioned there's, there's many different kinds of um, formats that you may want to compare. You mentioned, you know, sound files, I guess, you know, images. Do you then use different kinds of, of off-the-shelf open source or... I guess mostly open source, right? Tools to, to compare them because uh, you can you can do it manually, right? With by, by listening to a file. But if it's let's say it's a um, it's a JSON document, like a big yeah. JSON document, what do you do in that case? So I don't use things to compare compare them, right? Like so, the the files compare just bytes to bytes, right? Like in the end, mm-hmm. files are bytes. Uh, right. We actually do a little bit of less byte control on text files because there's just, I mean, not to get all ranty, but I, th- I feel like if you were to calculate the total time in developer life that's been wasted on line endings, it's, it's, it's like a genocide, right? <laughs> it's just like, like it's just entire lifetimes of people have been wasted on, on such a stupid problem. <laughs> so, so we have to deal with that on text files. And the vast majority of what I save is a text file. Um, but there are things that I, I do need to test that don't nicely turn out as text files. And, and it turns out that's not a problem. But the verification that it is the same is just bytes. When okay. it fails, so if it succeeds, nothing happens, right? Like this is one of the things that unit testing in general showed us. But, you know, when tests fail, you don't see a whole bunch of reports about the stuff that passes, Right, that's not the thing you care about. You don't care about the thousand tests that passed. You care about the one test that failed. That's what needs your attention. And so there's there's different levels of of information that and feedback that need to occur at that point. And and so when I am going to like listen to a sound file or so one one tool I might want to do is just literally play the sound file. Uh, but other tools that I'll do, especially with voice sound files, is I'll use like. Uh, speech to text and I'll actually diff out like so if I have like a two minute audio like let me diff out what it actually said as opposed to listening to it or maybe I'll put it in like acrocity and actually look at the waveforms and see what's going on right on failure I'll use different reporters to give me different insight mm-hmm. into what's going on right because one of the things, I mean, tests give you a lot of different things, right? But one of the things they give you is, is feedback and granularity, which is insight into your code. When a test is failing, right, there, there's two reasons that a test will fail. One is I haven't written the code yet, right? That's totally legit, legitimate. I know what's going on. The computer knows what's going on. We're in sync. I just haven't done it yet. But the other reason tests fail is because what's going on in my head isn't what's going on in the computer, right? And, and, and the first thing is I never win that argument, right? Like if I disagree with the computer, <laughs> the computer always wins. There's no, there's no arguing here. So now I have to figure out why is my mental model different than the computer? And tests are really helpful in providing information that helps me understand why it's different, right? In, in, in different ways. Like one, Tests help me to be clearer about what my mental model is in the first place, right? Like it helps me gather my thoughts, helps me like the spec and specification of this little tiny piece of what I'm doing, that's really valuable. And then the fact that it is a little tiny piece is also valuable, right? Like I'm focused 
on, on a particular part. That's helpful. But then also when it comes back, it gives me information. This is what I want. This is what I don't want. That's really helpful. And then if all of that fails, I also get information like I can, you know, people say like, I, I don't use a debugger because I write tests, but I actually find I, I use my debugger more because now I have a repeatable thing. And if for some reason it repeatedly doesn't do what my brain says it should, I need more information, right? Like I need to figure out what's going on. And so all of these things are really helpful to help me so that my brain and the computer start to match up. And, and reporters are just one more thing to do that. So I get back, this, this state of the, the model isn't matching what I think it is, why isn't it, right? And you know, so like I said, diff tools are really helpful to do that, but if it's HTML, right, maybe I can tell like the HTML is different, but why, does that make it look different in the browser? I'm not really good at rendering HTML in my head, but the browser is really good at rendering HTML, right? So why not open a browser, right? Yeah. Same with the, the top five. There's lots of different tooling that I use every single time that my tests are failing and I don't understand why. It's, it's funny because um, I, I'm, um, I'm not, I, <laughs> I wasn't familiar with the, the name approval testing until yeah. very recently. And, and then when I, when I learned about what it is, I realized that, that no, that's a technique that I've been using. I yeah. just didn't know it had a name, and, and I think that's really useful. Um, I think a lot of people have been using some form of this. Yeah. yeah. We, we use it actually in Cucumber, in, in the Gherkin parser, which is implemented in a dozen different languages. Nice. Uh, so, you know, the Ruby and the, and the Java and the .NET and Go and all, all of the parsers, they, they, they parse the same files, and then they produce an AST, yeah. Which they write out to to disk as a textual representation, and then the tests uh, are just comparing that with a golden master. Yeah, yeah. Because you're saying uh, using, like using diff. <laughs> parse this, give me my AST, and then verify that my AST is correct. Yeah, exactly. That, that's what it does. What, what's difficult about it, and uh, and that is, you know, when they are not diff, when they when they're different, because we made a refactoring, figuring out why they're different. Um, so the diff tools will help you to figure that out. But then there's another thing that comes up a lot. Like up until up until I started with this process, I sort of saw red green as is sort of the two states of test, right? And I now I now sort of have a, a more nuanced view of well, first there's it's failing because it's never passed, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's a very different state than it used to work and it stopped working, mm -hmm. right? And then in, it used to work and it stopped working. Now I have another two steps, which is it stopped working because I've goofed it up. Or it stopped working because my, the way I want it to work has changed, mm -hmm. right? Now, one of the things I love about behavior-driven development in general, right, is it really focuses on, on behaviors. And behaviors tend to change less Right, like implementation changes all the time. You give like, if just say you want to format a phone a phone number, right? You give that to ten different developers, you're going to get like ten different implementations back, and that's a very small amount of code, right? So implementations change a lot, and I want my tests, te whatever you test, whatever you verify, that locks that piece, right? So I don't want to lock implementation, but I do want to lock behavior, and you know, thinking 
I mean, it sounds like it's a really simple mind hack, but thinking from the term of, of behavior and as opposed to implementation, that really, really just, it makes my test much more robust. It tends to mean I'm testing what I want to test. So I, I, re- I really like that. But it's still the case that even once I start thinking about behavior, behavior can still change, right? And and so I still need to think of, has it changed because because my behavior is changing or has it changed because I've broken stuff and, you know, I do a fair amount of both. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it sounds um, maybe going back a bit, but the Michael Feathers talked about characterization testing. Yeah. Um, and I guess approval testing to some extent is, uh, I don't know, is it generalization or specialization? Or was it, would you say I, I, th- I actually think it's the opposite. I think characterization test is a specialization of approval tests. Okay. Um, it, it's a very powerful thing because, well, okay, so there's two things. When you were talking about the AST tree that you're looking at, one thing you're doing is you're, you're representing that AST tree, right? Like you said, uh, some probably some form of ASCII art, right? Like, I do to JSON on it. Yeah, that, that, that's a good form of ASCII art. I, I like yeah, JSON yeah. a lot. <laughs> um, and, and then usually we format that to be, be human, like diff readable, right? Because if you're going to JSON something over yeah. like a REST call, it's all one line effectively. Yeah, but two that's formatted with yep. sorted keys, right? So yeah, and sorted keys so it can be uh, reliable. Reliable is the wrong word. It's um, predictive. Yeah. yeah. So, so that sort of um, that stage of usually I get something and then I, I go through this visualization thing. Of, uh, visualization is like a tricky word because a lot of times we think of it as actual pixels, but some way of representing it that is is useful. Uh, ASCII art, it turns out, is is really useful. Some sort of two string uh, XML works really well. JSON works even better. Um, I use. For things that are, are grids, I'll, I'll use stuff like that. Uh, we even have tools that we use a lot, like um, we'll do like a PDF to text, right? Because you can, while you can verify a PDF file, it's annoying. Um, so so you, you have that stage where, where, you, where you visualize that out. But that allows us to take much bigger things and characterization tests do bigger things. Like here, I'll, I'll tell you a story from, from way back. We were working on this medical product, right? It was written in uh, C, which is, you know, horrible language. And we were porting it to C Sharp, which is, you know, okay language. Uh, definitely a huge step up. And it was about a 1,000 lines. A so 1,000 lines of code is not a lot of code, right? So I felt like, hey, we, we can rewrite this. Uh, so the first thing we did is we, we threw a characterization test on it. And... What we did is we logged. We just logged a lot. Uh, we added log statements, which you know usually you don't want to change code before, but adding log statements is a fairly safe thing to do. Right? You're not going to break too much. And we ended up with these huge log files, like four megabytes or so. Right? So just a lot, of, a lot of text getting pumped out. And I have no idea what this stuff does at all. Mm-hmm. But characterization tests, you don't need to know what it does. You just need to know this is currently working. So we, we take that, that file and then we just approve it just blindly. We, we don't know what it does. And then we start rewriting it. And as we were writing it, like things are going really good, right? And then all of a sudden, as, as we got more and more of the code in, we saw in, in our diff tool, of course, is taking us directly to there. Somewhere around three megs into this file, 
our numbers started going wrong, right? And and we're looking at it, and we're like, why why are our numbers right for the first you know <laughs> for the first three million lines, but now wrong going forward? And and the reason, of course, was uh, the butterfly effect. Like we were using doubles, and in C they were using floats. And that little bit of precision started to sneak in. And, and, of course, in this case, that little bit of precision means giving more heparin to you, which is not a good thing, right? Like a heparin is a blood thinner, and it's, it kills people if it's not given in the right doses. And I really don't want to be changing that because my medical knowledge is zero. Um, so so I, I can, because of this ability to take very large pieces of, of data and just verify them just make an assert that says check that it's still the same log file and then this reporter that says when it isn't i'm going to help you i'm going to help you make sense of this huge ocean of data by taking you directly to where where the problems are um it works really well for characterization tests now those tests we throw away right like we use that to port the stuff over but then we're like okay now that we know we're safe that we've moved it to C sharp, this test isn't really helping us because it doesn't it doesn't inform us, right? Characterization tests don't tend to inform; they just tend to protect. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so those are they're temporary tests, and in this case, it was temporary. Like you know, I think it was somewhere like a month, a month and a half, because uh, it was a fairly fairly long temporary for me. But we write. I, I worked on a PHP project where. It was. It wasn't even a method. It was just six thousand lines of code. Because, and we 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 did a characterization test and we started programming. And a little bit into it, we broke something, and we had no idea why. And so we we reverted, and it was still broken. And we reverted, and it was still broken. We reverted to the very beginning, and it was still broken. And we're like, well, it it, it can't be broken if we haven't changed anything. Uh, and it turned out that the the way the page rendered changed on the half hour, <laughs> right? Sort of like, <laughs> oh, crap. So what we did is we'd be like, okay, it's 10 o'clock. Lock the page. <laughs> program, 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 program. 1025, stop. <laughs> All right. Let's go, let's go get some coffee. Uh, oh, 1031, lock the page again. <laughs> program, 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 program. <laughs> right? So these characterization tests are really short-lived. Um, and, and approval test works really well for that, but it's just it, it's just a, a slice of this a fact that I can now verify more complicated stuff. It's not the way that I want to be programming. It's the way that I have to program when I'm in legacy, right? Like legacy code, I like legacy code a lot, but I like it because I also really like jigsaw puzzles. And if you think about it, jigsaw puzzles are like a stupid thing to like. Like hmm. here's a picture, I'm going to, cut it up into you know 2000 pieces and then just give you the pieces then you're going to spend the whole day putting it together and when it's done you probably don't really even care about the picture like you just <laughs> you just cared about putting it back together so legacy code has that kind of you know puzzle challenge thing for me um but but you really have to you have to go for better not good in legacy code Right, it's just give me something that's a little bit better. When I'm writing new code, I don't want better. I, I want good, right? So when I'm when I'm writing test driven, I want tests that are are intentional. 
that show what my intent is. This is this is what I want to create. This is what you know. One of the things that I think is is really really powerful about uh, test first and test driven is is the step at the whiteboard, which I, I don't think enough people actually do. Which is, go to the whiteboard and sketch out your scenario, and that's where I think all the creativity actually occurs. Right. Once I have that in on the whiteboard, sort of drawn or sketched or whatever whatever I can do to produce my scenario on the whiteboard, uh, then the rest of it is derivative. So, so we were up in uh, DevOps, and, and again, like, so because of mob programming, we have a lot of people who are like, hey, I'd, I'd like to try this out. And whenever we do mob programming, we always usually uh, do it some sort of kata, and we do it test-driven. So we, we were going to do Battleship, which is, you know, that little game with the ships, and you I've sunk your battleship. And... <laughs> So the first thing we're doing is we, we're drawing on the whiteboard and we, we, we create the grid and we put the ships on. And at that point, like we're getting conversations which are blowing my mind, right? Because there are things that growing up in America, I just really take for granted and, and I don't even realize I'm taking for granted. And one of them is like the Mattel battleship. Like for me, battleship was always a game from Mattel and it, it came with these pieces and, and I didn't realize that there are a lot of people who just play Battleship by drawing it out on paper and stuff. And so for them, they had ships that could take curves. And I'm like, that you can't do that. Like, when they drew it on the whiteboard, I'm like, what is this ship that has a curve in it? Like, that's not allowed. And, and, and so we get to have that conversation, right? Like, because we think we're in agreement until it shows up in, the, on, in a concrete example. Like, one of the great things about concrete examples is they flush out things that you think you agree about and realize you don't, or sometimes the reverse. You think you disagree about it, and as soon as you draw the concrete example, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah no. we're in agreement. Yeah. I thought it was half a dozen. You're saying that it's six. Hey, it turns out that's the same thing. But those, those concrete examples are really, really valuable. And then after that, we wrote it, you know, okay, what, what's the English of those steps we just wrote on the board, right? And that was usually where, that's where I think given when then starts to really shine, how are we setting stuff up? What are we actually doing? And then what are we verifying? But since we're using approval tests, the thing we're verifying is then verify the board, right? So we don't have to say, like, verify that it's, you know, 10 by 8 or verify that the ship is in 5-2 or that it's 5-2, 5-3, 5-6. Like, we get the whole board. We just, this is the board. I want it verified. And then we write the code behind that. So what does it mean to create a new board that, that's 10 by 8? Well, new board, 10, 8. I'm just going to pass in the parameters, right? Or maybe you want to say board.create, 10, 8. Or maybe you want to say board.with, width, 10, and height, 5.create, or however you want to do it, right? But you're creating that API. And then you're, you're saying, does that API actually compile? Does it work? Does it run? Uh, all these things, though, are derivative from the, that step at the whiteboard where we're creating that scenario. It's that conversation at the whiteboard. And, and that conversation isn't in code. It's, it's in the really smart part of our brain that, you know, how do you... <laughs> the part where they draw the ship that's curved, right? Like, it's really easy for me to draw that. It's really, but it's hard to actually express it. It's, it's harder to express it in English than it is to just draw draw a, an angle line on a board. So I get to use that really powerful part of my brain to have that conversation. 
But do do you think that that's exclusive to uh, approval testing? Oh God, or, no, no. So I guess one of the things that I th- would be interesting for for us to to hear you expound upon, because uh, because you're you're an entertaining speaker, is what is approval testing. I mean, I'm sure you're going to say no, but I hope anyway. Is approval testing the one true way? Or do you also do a bit of behavior-driven development in the sense that that's what you seem to be talking about at the whiteboard? And do you also do classic TDD, you know, with slightly less behavioral implementation detail tests, especially when you get into complex algorithmic spaces? So yes and yes, and because they're tangential, right? Like verific- uh, approval testing is the verification mechanism. Right, um, there's right. So, so like we talked, we talked about the just uh, characterization tests, which isn't test driven at all. Right, that's mm-hmm. that's just unit. That's automated unit testing. Yep. A, a unit in in quotes, maybe. <laughs> um, there's TDD, which I tend to write things more from a behavioral point of view, mm-hmm. um, as as maybe just have it just the way that I've done it for a long time um and and then there's there are times where the behavior is too complicated like uh, when I go into what I would consider classical TDD it's usually because the behavior just is a little bit too annoying for me to test and I need to have cut underneath it a little bit right like maybe the way I'm talking to a database is just a little bit I don't want to do that right now. So let me make a seam underneath it. Let me make a cut. Mm-hmm. There's this whole thing where um, there are programmers that do testing that have done some really kind of remarkably inventive and imaginative and, and creative ways of testing stuff uh, that I actually don't believe in, right? Like I think of it uh, a lot as like the movie Mate, The Matrix where Neo's on the roof and the Guy, the agent is shooting at him and he's like really fast and he's like dodging the bullets. Like that's not the tester you want to be. You want to be Neo at the end of the movie when the bullets come at him and he just makes them all stop. Like that test, like the tester that's moving around the bullets, that's like figuring out how do I go through my UI? How do I do this amazing stuff? Don't do that. Hey, bullet has a speed. Let's just make that public and set it to zero. Like I don't, I don't have to be smart to test my code. I need to make my code easy to test. Right? It's, when I have to be intelligent to test my code, I find that to be more of a smell of why is my code hard to test? Now, in legacy code, you, you don't have a choice. Right? You no. Bring on the so, brilliance. But, so that, what you're saying is, makes perfect sense. It's a, it's a message that people don't like hearing, though, is it? Um, people I, like I, demonstrating their smartness. Well, I think so. But, but it's also that uh, you, know, you, make, you need to make the code... Easy to test. Yeah, that's that's not going to happen if if it's someone else testing the code. Yeah. Oh God, someone, no. Someone that can't change the code, right? <laughs> well, and and this is one of the things I think about when you're writing, when you're doing test driven, you're the person who's benefiting from your work, right? And I think any time that you're you're doing work where you're not the person benefiting from it. It's really susceptible to to gaming and and mm. and just maybe good intentions that go wrong, right? But when you're doing it for a very selfish reason, and when when I do test driven development, it is a very selfish reason. It's to make it so that my code is easier to write and, and like it's for me, mm-hmm. right? And that helps me prioritize what to do. Well, I think it's it's for you too. 
Yes, it's, yes, it's, right. It's, it does benefit other people as well, but it definitely does directly benefit you as well, right? It benefits other people, but the reason I'm actually doing it is much more selfish. Yeah. So this, this goes back to something um, I think you were saying earlier, Llewellyn, about uh, the kind of two states of a failing test. It's either always failed or it's uh, used to pass and now it's failing. And yeah. like, TDD gives you those, like, you always start with a test that failed yeah. um, before it passed, hopefully. So you have that first state all the way through. And if it doesn't... That can be really interesting too, right? right like, yeah, yeah, that, that's yeah. either I wrote a really bad test or my mental model of how the code works isn't how the code works. Yes. Yeah. And both of those are good pieces of information. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so you also talked about throwing, uh, throwing, t- throwing characterization, t- characterization tests away. Um, and so sometimes with TDD, do you find that there's tests that help you build the software and design the software that don't then stand the test as being any use for failing later and giving you good information? So for me personally, I haven't had that for a while, but I, I used to. And the, and the reason is because I used to build TDD up. I used to build my classes up. Like, uh, I think I'm going to need this piece. I think I'm going to need this piece. And then I'll put them together to get the, the behavior I finally want. And when I did that, I, I very often did it wrong. I built extra pieces that weren't actually needed or, uh, you know, I, it's very easy to assume a, a robustness that isn't actually needed or, or required. Uh, but when I build down, now when I cross from BDD to TDD, it's because I didn't know how to do it in BDD or it became too annoying in BDD. Um, and so I needed to create that seam to go underneath to test the implementation. And because of that, it's, it's much rarer that I end up with something that, that I later on figure out the other side. Sometimes it happens, right? Like you, there are lots of things where you're like, hey, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not as smart. I wasn't as smart last year as I am now, right? Like each year, like you, you're, you're learning new stuff. So there's parts of your old code. You're like, why did I do that? Right. But, and that's just part of the learning process. But it happens a lot less because I start at behavior and I go down to implementation when I can't figure out a nice way of testing the behavior. Nice one. Uh, so um, you were at, uh, I believe, were you at Agile Testing Days this year? Yeah. 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 Down in um, Germany. Were you, did, I don't know whether you caught Goiko's keynote at the end. I did. Um, and I wondered what, whether you had any thoughts on the, you know, his, his headline... <laughs> Well, so none of us were there, and we've only we've only gathered, I think, what he said from Twitter and various <laughs> outraged people. But certainly, what's percolated out is, well, you know, we're just going to have vast computing power that's going to monitor stuff, and all this testing larks just ah, don't bother about it if you're not doing it already. So, is that what he said? And what's your take on it? No. So he was talking about some stuff. Um, he was using one of the examples of No Man's Sky. Right, and one of the things about No Man's Sky is it runs into this problem that I actually I, one of the reasons I really love approvals, which is okay. You guys can edit this out if it's, it turns out to be the wrong thing to say. Uh, but there's there's a famous <laughs> quote from I think it's from a <laughs> from a, a Supreme Court justice who said, um, "I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it." Yeah. And with verifications where you have to define ahead of time. That's, 
that is a problem, right? But one of the great things about people is we're really good at recognizing stuff. We're better at recognizing something than specifying something. And approvals allows me to recognize it rather than specify it, right? So that that becomes a really useful thing. And in No Man's Sky, because it's doing this, you know, generations of, of millions and trillions of worlds, there's no way to specify that, like, what a world should look like. But it is possible to look at a world and say, oh, that's not right, right? And so one of the things that they do is they have sort of this, it's like a monitor room, right? Where you have lots of monitors and they're just sort of showing lots of different games. And the recording, this is how they happen. And when someone says that world is wrong for, for whatever reason, like the generated animals just don't look realistic. That, I, you can even see like in, in the way that I'm phrasing these words, it makes sense that you could say generated animals that aren't real aren't realistic, even though they're also obviously not realistic. Like somehow our mind can tell things that are fake but plausible and consistent with our idea of things versus things that are fake and not consistent and plausible with our view of reality, right? And so it's actually fairly easy to do this, right? Because humans, you know, like we see things and we're like, oh, that's not real. Like, so, so they'll, they'll do that. And when they say that, that's the approval that, or that's the failing approval. And they'll be like, okay, that fails. And, and then you can say, okay, so we, we have this recording. This is how it got generated. We know it's wrong. Now let's start changing the code and rerun the same thing and see, okay, now is it working? Okay. And then when it's okay, you can lock that down. Right. And so this allows us to, to test and explore when you have a, a number of possibilities that are just really, really big. And uh-huh. we're getting to places where the, the amount of stuff that our code can do is so much greater than, than the amount of time that a single person can even, can even look at all the outcomes. And, and I'm going to scale down from where Goiko was talking because he's talking about, you know, when you start looking at like the generative worlds here, we're, we're looking at more, more universes than we actually have like molecules in our universe, right? Like this is how combinatorials and math work. Uh-huh. Um, but let's go to a much simpler situation because one of the things that approval test does really well is combinatorial testing, right? And so, so we already have like combinatorials of one we're already seen in testing, right? So you, a lot of times, uh, one of the things that Cucumber does really nicely is here's a list of inputs, right? Check them out, right? So if it's one, that's not a problem, right? But it really quickly becomes a problem when you have more than one. So we were doing a, a, a kata on Yahtzee. And Yahtzee is this game, you have some dice, you roll the dice, and, um, and then you score based on the dice. And I forget if it's like five or six dice, but it's somewhere in that neighborhood. And five, five dice. And so five, you know, six times six, six to the, uh, six, five times, that's a big number uh, for people, but it's not a big number for computers. So the test that I wrote was like, it was a combinatorial test, which just said, given six dice, verify all the scores, right? And so the, 
you, you can write that as a very simple test. You, you pass in a lambda in six parameter lists, right? And, and each parameter list was literally just one through six, right? And so it spit out some 36,000 results and said, you know, one, 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 one gives you, well, in the beginning, it gave me empty, right? Like zero, because I hadn't written any code yet. All the way through to like six, 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 right? And all 36 combinations in between, it does that, you know, in less than a second. And I'm looking at the results and I'm like, okay, well, here, here's my, here's my plane space. Um, so then I'm like, okay, well, let's first handle everything's the same, because that was a really easy score. So we did that. And then it pops up and I can see because the diff tool steps through. Here are the six places where I have all the numbers the same and they work. So I move those over and now I have like a partially passing test. It's by partially passing. I mean, it's failing, but <laughs> there are at least six, six out of 36,000 of the answers are right. And they're like, okay, well now let's handle our next case. And then we, it would pop up and we'd move those over. And, and so here I am, even though it's a two lines of code, it's it's checking thirty six thousand combinations and it's not a problem for me. Like it's you know, if I had to write out the specifications, it would I, you know even just writing thirty six thousand lines would take me all day. But um, hitting copy left is <laughs> that that's really easy for me to do. And and Goiko is talking about the fact that we are like we're now at the point where thirty six thousand isn't even the number we're looking at. We're starting to look at programs that give us access to combinations and permutations that are far beyond what any kind of specific testing will be able to do. And we start needing tools that say, we need to be able to look at situations and, and recognize that they're wrong and then react to them because we're no longer in a place where we can predictively check out all the situations. Did he also, but he, I, I've got a recollection, certainly from the tweet that he put out before he gave the keynote, that he also said, uh, I think he took it one step further and didn't just say that that was one way to go, but also that automated testing, um, I wish I could remember the tweet now, uh, automated <laughs> testing was, was, was something that you were going to do less and less of, not, not to bother with it anymore. Uh, no, that's not, that's not completely fair. Um, right, fair enough. I think it, we were doing more and more automated testing. But what we are doing as well is, is monitoring, uh -huh. right? So, it, like, it used to be like, I don't test, but I test in production. Like, yeah, and it used to mean, like, I'm just an idiot who throws code <laughs> over the wall. Right? And we're moving to this time where the concept of testing in production responsibly is a possibility. Yeah. Right. And, and that doesn't mean not, don't test, right? Like that definitely doesn't mean that, right? Cause what you don't want is to like end up constantly failing production. But if you're releasing, like as we've moved towards continuous deployment, right. And you're, and you're releasing multiple, multiple times a day and each change is small and, and you're, 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 you're doing like a canary rolling deploy where, you know, I have 10 servers and I, I put my new one out as one and only 10% of the traffic goes there. And hey, if nothing spikes and nothing goes wrong, then move it up to 20%, 30%, 50%, 100%, right? Then the cost of a mistake is less. And in my view, all of Agile is like Waterfall was, damn it, these mistakes are expensive, don't make them. Let's plan, let's prepare, let's just not make mistakes, 
right? And Agile came about and said, no, you know, you're going to make mistakes. We're, we're going to mess up. This is part of being human. Instead of putting our discipline in trying not to make mistakes, let's put discipline into making mistakes cheap, right? Yeah. Let's make it so they're not expensive. And when I, you know, when I make TDD, I make so many bugs, right? But they get cleared like as I'm going from red to green, like in, in seconds, nobody sees them. They don't get committed. Like, and because nobody sees them, nobody, like, they're like, wow, you're not making any bugs. No, I just, I made a lot more bugs. I made more bugs than I used to make. I just got yeah. rid of them before you saw them. So you don't, you know, you're thinking I'm good because, because you're not seeing all those mistakes that came by. It's like spell checking, right? Like because of the way spell checking works, I make a lot less spelling errors than I used to make, but my spelling's actually worse, right? It's just, it turns out that my in documents are, have better spelling. And, and so a lot of Agile is this. It's let me put discipline and process in place so that my mistakes are cheap and usually cheap enough that they don't even register as mistakes for people, Yeah. right? And so test-driven development definitely does a lot of that, but uh, all different parts of Agile address this sort of fundamental thing of we're going to make mistakes, make them cheap. And, and with continuous deployment, you get this advantage of if I put something into production that's a problem, I can be cheap enough that I don't even have to revert it. I can just fix it, put it back into production and, and fix it. And, and with the canary, you know, I can put it into production. It will take itself out and let the rest of my server continue to work and give me leisure to fix it, right? So it becomes really cheap. Yeah. And and I that that moves to this concept that you can do testing in production responsibly. And I, I think that's actually kind of a, a fascinating thing. But <laughs> like like there's so much complexity to code. One of the things uh, uh so uh Marat Puayarvi is is an extraordinary exploratory testing tester. She's my partner and she took approval tests as a test target. Right? She's like, I want to exploratory test your approval test. And I'm like, I'm like, oh yeah, go for it. You know, like it's it's all written test first, and it's, it's code I'm very proud of. And um, she destroyed it in in like an hour, hour and a half. <laughs> uh, and and she destroyed it on things that like I can't unit test, right? Really, like she just like one of the things she pointed out right away was like your documentation is horrible. Like you're using images that you can't even copy and paste the examples from. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, that's true. And then she's like, and look, look at the way you write this API. Like it's not, it's not discoverable, right? And that's like a hard thing for me to deal with because for me, I know exactly where the API is. Like one of the things I constantly struggle with is beginner mindset, uh-huh. right? And it's so easy to lose that, and then and then never appreciate it in the beginning. So it's so easy to be like, no, you idiot. You're supposed to do it this way. Um, <laughs> right. And so, so this idea that like my names aren't discoverable, that that's not something I can unit test. Um, but it was something that she was able to point out right away. And then after pointing it out and sort of arguing a little bit, she, she did this thing where she, um, she did it in, in a session where she, she made, I, I attend the session, but everybody's doing a mob exploratory testing. And now I'm watching like, 10 people not be able to find reporter and you know it's nothing like watching people use your product and not being able to talk to make you like appreciate that you've done it wrong <laughs> right where you're like oh this is so painful i never want to see that again um so so what i found is like it used to be the case that we would write code and 
it was it was horrible. It was buggy and and full of just problems. And and there were so many bugs where what we intended to occur wasn't what was happening. Mm-hmm. That all the testing was was checking that what the programmer intended is what the code did. That's all. That's all we had time for. And as we start doing, you know, as we start doing unit testing and automated testing and, and test first, those problems start to go away. And so now that what the code does is what we intend it to do. And then it turns out there's this entire another world of is what you intended what you want. <laughs> and it turns out that's still a remarkably complex world, right? And so, so you don't want to spend your time fighting what I intended isn't what the code does, right? So we still, you need the unit test for that. But we also need to pay attention to this much bigger world of is what I intended what I actually want? What are the unforeseen consequences mm-hmm. of these rules? And, and that starts moving to exploratory testing and, and monitoring, right, which is effectively exploratory testing via your users. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that world is important, and, and we're, we're moving into it more. And, and it's a luxury that we get to look at that part because we have code that actually works the way we intend, right? And, and you're not going to get that without unit testing. Fair enough. I, I look forward to them releasing that, that, that keynote uh, as a video because uh, yeah. I, I don't think the Twitter, the Twitter stream has given it, <laughs> done it quite justice. Um, yeah. So I'd really like to um, just focus us back in for a second oh, yeah. on, um, on approval tests, the, your um, library. Um, yeah. I, believe, I believe it's a .NET platform library. So I, I, as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm a paired programmer. Um, so approval test originally was written in Java. Uh, it is currently also written. Let me actually just bring this up because I get a little bit confused at time. If you go to github.com uh, slash approvals, you can see all different things. Uh, we have it in Python. We have it in .NET. We have it in Node. We have it in Java. We have it in Go. We have it and just jumped off my page. Uh, we have it in Go. We have it in uh, TLC. We have it in Objective-C. We have it in uh, Lua. We have it in C++. We have it in Perl. And we have it in Ruby. Excellent. That makes my question either much easier or much harder. <laughs> um, so, uh, so for someone who's listened to this podcast, who's maybe using Cucumber or Specflow or something like that, and maybe yeah. a unit testing library as well, um, if they wanted to start using approval tests for the verification step, what would their like process look like when they're doing? So uh, Katrina Owens' port to Ruby is the place to start there, but unfortunately, that's focused a little bit more uh, towards R spec. Um, so what I would actually suggest is stay in Cucumber and just start by writing to a file, right? Which is a very, a very simple thing to do, um, and start with naming it that way. And then the next part I would would suggest is, is I mentioned before, like I pair a lot. Uh, contact me. Like when people, the reason it moves to different languages is people are using it and they say, hey, I want in this different language. We usually pull up Skype and. Um, you know, the ports go fairly quickly. Uh, I just recently ported it to Golang. And, and Go is a very neat little language. Uh, I knew nothing about it. Um, it ended up taking us uh, 10 sessions from start to finish, of 10 two-hour sessions. So we did it over the course of about two weeks. 
Um, and we had a first release on the first day, and we just kept wanting more features. Um, and, and so we pushed out there. So if you're like, hey, this is working, but it's not working the way I want it to be, um, usually a one-hour Skype call can get it working the way you want it, plus on master branch and published, right? So you can actually use it. Um, so start, though, with just start by just saying, hey, I want to verify, like when you're at the whiteboard, I want to verify the thing. Just just stop saying like the individual pieces of the thing and just start saying the thing and, and serialize that to a file, right? And again, JSON, formatted JSON is a great way to start. Um, most of your objects formatted to JSON will, will tell you the things that you need to do. You'll start doing a little bit of filtering, right? Like maybe I don't want to see all the fields, right? That's, that's important. Like look at the stuff you want to look at and get rid of the the extra stuff, but you know, just because you can verify everything doesn't doesn't mean you should. You know, scope still matters. Um, and then, and then start pinging me, and we'll start making it more robust. That's that's the path. Uh, or if if you are using uh, R spec, you can just use it out of the box from there. So I mean, we've got Cucumber in um, uh, on the JVM and JavaScript. As, as well as the Ruby version, and then for people doing BDD in the Specflow world, uh, in C Sharp .NET, there's Specflow. So can yeah. you use? So you can do it with Spec. Uh, is it Specflow or is it? Uh, I feel like Cucumber has a weird name in .NET. Specflow. Yeah. Is it Specflow? Okay, yeah, uh, yeah. That that does work because it turns out it just goes into um, in unit. Right, so one of the things about approval test is it sits underneath the the testing package, right? So it's just a verification. We have a very strong like we don't want to be the the front door. We want to be just a library you can use. And so I know it works in .NET um, that way. And so, so, so what would someone's process be like? If it, do you use kind of Gherkin and approval tests together? Do you use Specflow and approval tests together? Have you been through that process? I haven't actually. Um, I usually use my my extent with cucumber is usually the words, um, yeah. right? And and the reason for me is I really like not having the extra level of separation between between when I'm writing my test and and the code that comes out. I also one of the things I, I tend to not like is uh, so you'll see this in in places where they're like, well, we write our test in Perl, but then we write our our code in C, right? And I I don't like that because it usually means that the process of writing tests becomes separate from the process of writing code. Uh, so for me personally, I usually just, I write it on the whiteboard, I write it in the English, and then that goes directly in, and it turns out it it, it goes rather simply um, for me. Like I can take a given when then statement and just write that as three lines of code and we're, and we're there. And so the, the conversation becomes more po powerful to me than the tooling. Um, but But again, the, when we were, when we were playing with cucumber, it was just literally given when then verify, right? So then verify the object, and you go to your to your uh, you go to your 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 then, and you just literally you pass in an object, and you say approve this object. Yeah. And and so so when you're using your approval test, when you're in that uh, writing the test stage, that's when it 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 comes up and asks you this is what you've got right now, is that right? And eventually you tell it it is right. Is it's that on the failing. Anytime the test fails, it's going to 
So this is this is a, this is the, I think the one of the biggest paradigm changes with approval tests is normally the tests don't interact with humans. Period, right? Like there's nothing that is. But in approval tests, we say like on failure, this is a time where we might want to interact with a human. So on a failure, we will then launch. This is where it goes to reporter. We say this is what I got. This is what I expected. Go to a reporter. And reporters are really small little little objects. Um, that literally just have one method called report that takes two files and will do something and, and then returns if it could, right? So they can chain together. Uh, so, so if I can't, so like, let's say I have a reporter that uh, uses vimdiff, but I'm on a system that doesn't have vim, then it will just return false and say, hey, I don't know how to handle this. So I can put a reporter that says, okay, go try kaleidoscope, then try uh diff and then try vim diff and then if if all of that fails just print to the console right and it can chain together these little reporters that make them very robust and kind of do what you want to do um so we'll, just a quick question so will, yeah. will it then ask or does it offer the option then can you block them and ask for for user input to say you know is this good or not good you can right but i usually don't okay i usually if it fails, it fails, right? Just end of story. But it opens up something that helps you that you can do it and then rerun it and let yeah, it pass, yeah. right? You sure. do have that option. But the thing is, if you do block, then when you put stuff into like your, your continuous integration and stuff, so the reporters on continuous <laughs> integration yeah, usually yeah. don't launch anything. They just write to the console, right? Because just report to the console, stuff didn't work. Right, whoever whoever is going to look at that's not going to look at it on the build machine. They're going to look at it on their machine. Uh, and one of the things that is is, I think a, another sort of difference is I am constantly changing my reporters based on on what I need to see. Right, so that so I might do something that shows it in HTML. I might show, do something that shows it on a diff tool. I might do something that show, launches both of them, right? Or I might do something that doesn't either. Um, and so I. It, when things fail, I will tinker. And then once it's done, I'll let it go. And one of the things I tinker with a lot is the reporter. Like, how do I see the thing that's going to help me to, to make this understandable? So the, the files that you produce as your approvals, um, the, the things that you're, you're comparing against. Yeah. yeah. Those, are, I can imagine, are really interesting to people in the business. Yes. Yes. Like, um, and so one of the things we talk about with Cucumber is the idea of writing it in English is yeah. that um, it's something that the business people can interact with and have opinions on and read and understand. Um, the approval, the approval files, files are too. Right, um, but they get really hidden inside a source code repository. Like, I, I feel. Where, where do they live, I guess? Yeah, no, so they live inside the source code repository. Um, hidden is is an interesting word. So... Um, yes, they're, they're hidden inside the, like, if you go to a normal person, like, and you say, Hey, have you used source control? Then they're, they're like, no. Uh, but what I find is that with approval tests, if you start going to your product owners, like they have looked at source control, right? Because you can do some weird stuff on an approval file, right? And, and one of the things we quickly came around, there's this entire concept I have called the testing circle, which is you go to the whiteboard and you draw your scenario, and then you take that scenario and you turn it into English. These are the mechanical, these are the steps of what I just did. And then you take that English and you turn it into code. And then that code should produce a result 
that kind of reminds you of, of what you drew on the whiteboard. Right, so if you think of the battleship scenario, uh, we, we draw a board and we put the ship on it and then we put a bomb in the water and then we put a bomb on the ship. That's our scenario. Okay, so then we go to our English. Create, create the board, put the ship at, at the point, put the bomb in the, that hits the water, hit the, put the bomb that hits the ship, verify the board. Then we create that code and that code ends up doing a little bit of ASCII art and prints out sort of an ASCII grid that has like, you know, dots and, and the boat thing and, and little X's where the bomb is hit. And, and that's what we approve. And so the whiteboard, of course, gets erased, right? Because who keeps a whiteboard around? But, but that ASCII art, like when it fails, it immediately pops up. And you're like, oh, yeah, I remember, I, I remember this scenario. Look, it's a board with a, a ship on it. And there's these, <laughs> these bombs that have gone off. Um, and so that, that whole thing sort of re- makes a circle, right? Where it's, it, well, you could actually start with the output. Um, or you could start with the, you, know, you can kind of start anywhere in there. It's not a direct thing, but I usually start at the whiteboard, uh, but not always, right? Like, so for example, when we were, we did this process where I had some Excel files and I needed to like take them in and produce, uh, some XML output, right? And there was like five different Excel file or there was one Excel file, but I mean, it was five, you know, there's, there's, there's this, this combination of files and they needed to come together and do linking and stuff to create the, the, the tree and the business, the product owner, he can't, he can't see like a, an angle bracket for his life, but he, he can handle a tree view and he understands the domain really well. So he's, so we bring up the Excel files and we, we open an XML editor in tree view and we start saying, okay, this is what the data needs to look like. And, and he was able to very cl- clearly say like, okay, well, these products should show up here and here. And we end up with this fairly massive XML file. So in this case, we're starting sort of one step before the whiteboard, right? Uh, but I'm like, okay, well, this is what I want my end result to look like. And I just sort of approve that ahead of time, right? Like, okay, I know what, I know what my end result needs to look like. And my test is actually trivial. Given these Excel files, run the process and verify the JSON, like three lines of code or, or XML. And then I had an entire weekend of work to, to make this work, right? It took me somewhere in the neighborhood of like 10 to 12 hours. Uh, but each time I did it, I'd be like, okay, I got, I got the first line working, and then I'd move that over, and then the second line. So, my, so I, my eye would kind of move down the diff of this XML one, one bit at a time as each new requirement is kind of exposing itself to me. Like, why is this value this value? And so... Once you have that, then as we're going through the XML, stuff is wrong, right? Because we handcrafted this XML. Of course, we, we, we calculated things wrong. We missed things up. And so I would keep coming back to the business user and being like, hey, I'm getting this result, but it, it, you said it should be this. Is, is that right? And he'd be like, oh, no, no, no. I, what, when I said this, I really meant this, right? And so all of a sudden, he became like able to go into my my master and change it, right? And so what we find is very quickly, like, okay, you're making a, a web service? Like, we'll f- product owners will just literally jump into your approval files and say, like, this REST file should not be returning this value. And, and they'll just change it. And my test will fail. And I'll be like, oh, okay, this is how I need to change it. Or they'll go into, like, if I'm doing GUI work, they'll literally pop up the image open it in like paint and like X out. <laughs> I don't want this button here. I, I, this needs to be purple, right? And they'll like color it the way they want it and then check it back in. And, 
And again, it's it's not going to, like if they X out a button, it's not like I'm then ever going to get that test to pass without reapproving it. But actually, like literally when it fails and I pop it up and I see this screen with it X'd out and these lines drawn, I'm like, okay, I know what you mean. And then I can fix it and, and check it back in when I, when I get it looking like they actually want. So getting that that output to tell the story actually becomes like a very useful thing. And, and there's a couple different things I do in general to do that. One of them is a lot of times I'll use a little bit of header text, like that actually sort of states the scenario. I do this particularly in combination. So in the Yahtzee there, right, I will say, um, you know, scores for a Yahtzee, and then I'll put the 36,000 things. And then the other thing I do is... Um, I don't just put the scores. I'm not just going to list 36,000 numbers, right? I'm going to say 1111 gives me the score of this, right? So I can tell here's the scenario there. And that whole thing tells the story. And once you do that, right, it's very easy for a product owner to go in and say, hey, you messed up the score for, you know, three, four, five, six. Like that, that's not what it should be. And they'll just change it there. And, and so they start looking at the source control and, you know, Okay, obviously you don't want to give them like command line git because that's just mean. Uh, but if you use something like GitHub Desktop, you know that that's almost like Tortoise SVN, right? Like it's it's very friendly to a, a non-programmer. <laughs> so so yeah, they start looking at those files. So uh, yeah, and then that, and at that point, if they're looking at them and interacting with them, there's um, they're able to really give you good information and you're able to have more conversations about them. Exactly. And this goes whole to the whole thing of, so specification, that's our conversation. What is it we're trying to build? Feedback, you can, you can do feedback and specification without doing any kind of what we consider testing, right? Like a main method, you can do, give me an example and let me see if it's working. Or if you, if you actually look at like PHP developers and stuff, very often they like sort of sketch something on a board and then quickly they're opening up the web browser and checking right away like, is my code working? So that's giving you specification feedback. Um, then you get regression. So regression is, I got it working <laughs> once, does it still work? That's where, you, that's where the real hard line of a unit test needs to occur, right? Like if you don't have automated testing, you can get specification and feedback, but you don't have this thing of it used to work, but does it still work? And then finally, granularity is when it fails. So it used to work, it stopped working, why? Right, and it seems like feedback and granularity are very similar, but like just to give like a, an interesting difference, um, Continuous integration is really about granularity, right? Like that's temporal granularity. It stopped working. I only changed this one thing. This is the problem. Even if I don't look at the output of the error message, I can sort of fix the problem knowing if the things that have changed are small enough. And before we had continuous integration, when we just did like a nightly build, okay, like all five of us checked in code and it, it failed. Whose problem, like whose fault is it? Well, obviously it's your fault. Right? Like, it's not my fault. But when we move to continuous integration, I'm the only one who's changed code between it passing and failing. Okay, now we know it's my fault. Right? So that granularity became really, really useful. And, you know, you hear this a lot. We want our tests to be fast. Well, that's because we want temporal granularity. Like, we want to know when something goes wrong, how, how much has changed in between it going wrong. And if your tests take a long time to run, well, then you're not going to run them very often. Right? If your tests take five minutes to run, you're not running them every minute. And most people I know who are doing 
test-driven are running somewhere in the neighborhood of at least three times a minute, right? So we were taking these really quick runs and, and you start moving towards stuff like continual runners and stuff. And then it's just, it's on keystroke. Um, so, so we really want that kind of, you, you want quick granularity, you want good feedback, you want regression to know like stuff is still working, give you confidence that at least what you intended is still in play. And then spec. And, and I think a lot of BDD is, is focused on spec, uh, but it's not that they don't care about the other things. It's just they, they really care about that conversation. It's a really important part. Cool. Thank you so much, Llewellyn. I, um, I know for a fact we could keep talking probably for another two or three hours, <laughs> but the only thing that, that happens then is we have a great time and people get to work <laughs> listening to the podcast on the car and they're sat in the car park. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, they're late to work because the conversation's really interesting and, and then they won't subscribe anymore just because they don't have time to listen to it. Um, and they can subscribe on iTunes and um, various other places, which Theo will fill us in on, I'm sure. Thanks. Uh, yeah, no, thank you very much. It was a great conversation. Oh, really enjoyed it. So much fun to talk about testing. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Llewellyn. Thanks a lot, Llewellyn.